the commander of the air, uh, NATO commander, Colonel, walked in and he just thought it was so cool that I had used general aviation to solve his problem. Hi, I'm Paul. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Brad Launchpad Mazzari. If you're not familiar with Launchpad, he's a reporter at large for the Airplane Geeks podcast. And for the sake of this podcast, he has over 30 years of flying experience and adventures to share. Right, here's a sound bite that I want to increase everybody to, is go up and talk to any pilot, don't care how long he's been flying, and ask him to talk about his solo. In this episode, I talk with Launchpad about two of his most memorable adventures from his years as a pilot. And as soon as we crested the ridge, we're in a two to 300 foot per minute descent. Well, on the other side of that was a ski slope that we didn't realize was there. We're like, ooh, and our first thought was, quick, where's the ski lift? He took an interest in aviation in the hopes that some adventures would follow. And it took him about 80 hours for him to realize that, yeah, they were, they were gonna follow. And it was just the fun of like, oh boy, this is why I got a pilot's license, to go take the adventure and just the sightsee and the fact that I got to do it for work and get paid that day was just like, woohoo. <laughs> this is my conversation with Launchpad, how he approaches being a safe pilot while still searching for the next adventure. Look at the fences, look at the big rocks they put out or planters they put out in front of buildings to prevent you from driving there or curbs or fences or you know posts. Now look up, there's no fences, there's no posts, there's no curbs. Your complacence to the rules is purely voluntary and they trust you to follow the rules. This is Adventure Flying. When I first reached out to you, you know, I said, do you have an interesting adventure? And sometimes when I ask people, they're like, gee whiz, I've flown for 40 years and I don't know what I would say, right? You right off the bat had like, I got something for you. Like here, here's what I would regale you with. Before we get into your specific uh, adventure or adventures. How, how long have you flown? And if you can remember back to the beginning, what, what, what got you into aviation initially? Um, I've always been fascinated with it, um, but I always just kept missing it. And by that I'm referring to, I was went to a military school and I would take the get into aviation test and I'd be you know, I'd have scored a 98 on it. Well, you have to have a 99 this year. Okay. Next year I'd take it and I'd get a 102 and you had to have a 103. And so I never flew in the military. I never got paid to flying. And then somewhere around 95, I was a civilian working in Europe. And I said, you know, the heck with this. And I just went and got my, joined the local flying club at an Air Force base, which was really fun. Where was it? Uh, Ramstein. Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. And the fun flying for a, um, the, the part that was difficult was that the air force didn't, or the, the flying club I was at didn't make a difference between what was an FAA rule, what was a German rule, what was an air force rule and what was a flying club rule. Mm. <laughs> and it was just the rules. And I remember first time I was in America and, you know, I went out to rent an airplane and I went out with the with the check pilot and we climbed, you know, we did the pre-flight and we climbed in. I said, okay, let's call for engine start. And he goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and you know, well, at Ramstein, you had to call on the tower free or on ground frequency and get permission to do an engine start that you'd already filed the paperwork for. You know? And he was like, what are you talking about? And I realized, oh, that must be an air force rule. So that's where I got flying. And I was just doing purely 
enjoyment, fun flying. What was the, do you remember the first aircraft you got up in? My first, and this is one thing I want to, here's a sound bite that I want to increase everybody to, is go up and talk to any pilot, don't care how long he's been flying, and ask him to talk about his solo. And they can tell you Mm. where it was, when it was, they probably still remember the end number of the aircraft, and they can tell you what kind of aircraft it was. Was yours in Ramstein? Uh, yes, it was. It was really fun because what it was was it, um, a pipe PA twenty eight. You know, November four three zero six whiskey, and <laughs> you know it was the just standard. like it was yesterday, right? Yeah, well, it was the standard. You know, at some point he jumps out with his little radio, and you do three patterns around the circuit. And what was very common then for at Ramstein, and I'm on my about to do my third landing. And the tower comes up and they say, you know, hey, we want you to do left-hand 360s over the water tower until further notice. And that was very common. If you were in the pattern, they would put you in a 360. They had like three, two water towers. And they'd put you in an orbit around one of the water towers because they were bringing in a, you know, in my case, they're bringing a C-130 in on the runway. So they just park everybody in the pattern in a, like a whole, a little holding pattern. And I remember I was, you know, they said, you know, left three sixties until further notice. Okay. So I start doing left three sixties around the water tower and my instructor jumps on. He goes, November, you know, four, three, zero six whiskey is a, is a, is a student solo pilot. And they went, and he's doing very well, November, keep doing your three sixty. So, you know, you know, my, my second hop, I, you know, the three solos that are only supposed to take you, you know, what, 10 minutes or something. You know, mm-hmm. I was up there for half an hour waiting for the C-130 to land and taxi off so they could release me and put me back in the pattern to do my third landing. Yeah. You were pra- practicing your turns around a point is what they yeah, told you. That so, was it. And that yeah, was, that's, that's it. That was exact. And that was very common there to every time a jet fighter. And that was also the, you know, when you're just getting into aviation, the cool part of like, yeah, I was in the pattern with an F-15 today, you know? <laughs> But that's got to be pretty. So I, I I've only trained in the United States, right? I mean, is there anything else you would say you took away from not only becoming a pilot overseas, but on a military base? Um, what I took pattern from overseas was how lucky we are in America, because it is so much cheaper, it is so much friendlier. Um, we could do an entire show about how restrictive it is, and the fact that they want more hours and it's more expensive, yada yada yada. Um, taking it on an, on a military installation was actually the opposite. It was a little bit more restrictive, but also, um, uh, more adventurous. So for instance, you had to pass an aircraft ID test before you could solo so that when they said you're number two behind the F-15, you knew what the F-15 looked like. Mm-hmm. And because Ramstein had other fast movers, we had to identify, you know, all the other NATO jets that or type of aircraft that could appear in the pattern with you, including 747s and all this stuff. So you had to do that. The other thing was before, like you did your cross country, you had to learn how to shoot a, I believe it's, they don't do it much anymore, a radar precision approach, which is where they take you out and you call for it. And the radar guy brings you and he says, okay, you're you know up a little, down a little, you're drifting left, you're drifting right. And they radar guide you all the way down to a 200 foot decision point. And you had to pass that before you could do your cross country solo. And that was because they were like, look, you get up there and get lost. We can bring you back. 
So as this episode touches on, Launchpad was a DoD contractor, yet his job had nothing to do with aviation. His story, though, shows how he chose to use general aviation. I was a contractor for the DoD, had nothing to do with aviation, nothing. What was exciting and what my thing was, I got to use aviation for my job. And well, getting a pilot's license is a little bit like, I don't know, getting your sailboat license. It's, you know, you're going to joke, you're kidding yourself if you think it's going to be very practical. And what it was, was we were working for, uh, I won't get into all the gross details, but uh, I was being a DOD contractor, and this was during when we were going into Bosnia for I-4, um, and then later K-4 when we went to Kosovo. So my company, we were working in Stuttgart. We had to configure these routers and satellite modems to do um, predator video. And it was like, okay, we got these all ready, and we're ready to go down. And one of them got shipped to... Bosnia. The other one has to go down to the KAOC. The KAOC is the Combined Air Operations Cell, um, which is where they were handling all the NATO air track, the, the NATO headquarters for the air war going on in Bosnia. And it was located in Vincenza. And we were up in Stuttgart. And it was an eight or nine hour drive down across the Alps because you go from Germany through Switzerland, Austria, and land down Italy. Um, and I went to my boss and went, hey, my car doesn't run well today. Can I rent a vehicle? And he said, yes. And it was like, cool. So we went down and rented a P-20. I rent. I took the airplane I always rent out of, not at Ramstein. This was a German airplane by now because I'd already got my pilot's license. I was flying. Went down and just rented a German registered little PA-28. Uh, talked to my flight instructor. He reviewed the weather with me. We reviewed the route. And we were like, okay. Took a coworker with me and at, you know, six you know, seven o'clock in the morning, we fired up the engines at sunlight and went flying. Um, the fun part about it was, so we're going to fly across the Alps and um, we're heading to, we're flying through the pass and oh my God, it was everything that, you, you know, all the photos you've seen of people flying in the Alps. Yeah, that's all real. It really was because we were flying up this valley or I, I'm, when I say valley, think huge mountain valley, you know, it's, four kilometers from side to side or something like that. So we're flying up this and doing our navigation. And then we kind of looked and realized, you know, we're not going to make it. And what I mean, we're not going to get, we're not high enough yet. So we ended up doing two or three 360s. So, you know, point for us for doing aeronautical decision-making because we decided, we looked at that one. I don't think we're going to make that. So we started doing 360s and climbing. Well, it's a PA-28. you know, at these altitudes, it's clawing for altitude at 200 feet per minute, maybe 300 feet per minute. And we got up high enough and we said, yeah, we're going to make this. And, but it was just fun when we were doing the 360s to just look out the window and go like, wow, look at this. You know, and there was a little bit of like, you know, if this engine quits, we're, we're going to be sucking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Good thing we brought the heavy boots with us. And so we, we get up to altitude and we decide to go over it. And the other thing was we were, we had briefed and I had studied up on a mountain wave. And that's something, you know, icon flyers may or may not know about a lot of, and that is when the wind is going toward the mountain, you get an updraft, mm-hmm. which we were using to help us climb. But as soon as you get over the air going over like rock, like water going over a rock on the backside goes down. 
and we briefed that there was going to be this mountain wave on the backside. And as soon as we crossed over, um, we had changed nothing in the airplane. And by that, I mean, we were still in a 200 foot per minute climb. And as soon as we crested the ridge, we were in a two to 300 foot per minute descent. Mm-hmm. Nothing changed on the airplane. Well, on the other side of that was a ski slope that we didn't realize <laughs> was there. Mm-hmm. And we're like, ooh. And our first thought was, quick, where's the ski lift? And we identified the ski lift off to our right. So we're like, okay, there's no danger of hitting cables or wires. And we ended up flying down the slopes of the ski slope. And luckily we were descending at 300 feet per minute. And the ski slope was somewhat descending at about 400 feet per minute. Hmm. So we ended up just flying down this ski slope. And that was a lot of fun because we were like looking at people and people were all stopped and looking up at us. And we're like, oh, this is cool. And then again, the back side of, of, or the southern side of the Alps were just as gorgeous. And flying down from all that vista on the Alps into the Po Valley of Italy, where it was all luscious green and white, you know. And it was just like, oh, this is a blast. Um, then came the other half of the adventure. We're landing down in Italy, and we land in Vincenza, and... Vincenza is a dual-use airport where the southern side belongs to the Italian Air Force and the northern side was the civilian airport. And we land and I say, look, we're taxiing over to the mill side. And the combined air uh, combined air headquarters was a set of those shipping containers that you, you buy and just put them together real quick and they turn them into offices because hmm. that's what they were doing. And we had been down there once before to deliver equipment driving and to get on post. Oh, you had to go through Italian security at the front gate. Then you drove over to the NATO side and went through American security to get on. And then you're inside the building. Well, I was in the airplane. We just taxied up to the side of the building and literally knocked on the window. And they were like, launch pad. And I was like, Hey, I got your router. And they're like, and he just threw the, w- the window open. Cause he knew I was coming. And he's like, come on, get in. Let's start installing. So we start, installing this router and doing comms checks. And I call back to my office and say, Hey, we're here, light up the circuit. And my boss is like, wait, it's only like 11 o'clock. How'd you get down there so quickly? And I was like, um, we left early and he was like, okay. And so we're doing, and then all of a sudden the MPs burst in and they're all wound up like, how did you get in here? And we point at the window. (laughs) <laughs> and they're like, no, how'd you get on pace? And we point at the airplane that was no, no joke, 10 feet from the window. And they're like all flustered because essentially they had put wires and barriers on the three sides of the, of the headquarters, but the side that was open to the runway was just open. And what solved all this was the commander of the air, uh, NATO commander, Colonel walked in and he just thought it was so cool that I had used general aviation to solve his problem. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. He just thought it was so cool that, you know, uh, that I, you know, rented an airplane and flew down to bring him his router. And he was like, he just thought that was everything. And he's like, okay, to appease the MP, he was like, move the airplane over to the civilian side. It took us 45 minutes to turn on the, turn on the router, two or an hour and a half after comms checks. Had lunch, climbed back into the airplane and flew back over the Alps. Now on the way back, we briefed, what we did was we actually popped up to 12,000, 12,5. And you can be above 12,000 feet for th- in Europe for 
uh, 30 minutes before you have to come back down without supplemental oxygen. And that's what we did rather than, because we, we went over the pass at 10,000 with the peak still above us. So this time we went up to 12 and just popped over and then just started this screaming descent down into Germany. You know, set yourself up, as you come across the last part of the Alps, set yourself up for a, you know, 400 minute, 400 feet per minute descent. Dude, it's just a big, at that point, just a big gradient all the way into Stuttgart. It was really fast. Um, and we landed. And then I walked into the office to fill out my travel expense. And the boss was like, wait, you called me from it. Yeah, what's going on? Yeah, it was, he was like, what did you just do? And it was like, well, we flew down. And he just had a conniption fit. And I ended up getting AOPA online and showing him that it, if we'd have driven down there, it would have been three days of TDY because we'd have driven down the first day, installed on the second day, and either driven back the second day or spent the night and come back on the third day. And it was cheaper to rent an airplane and go down one day and be back. And he finally saw the wisdom of that. But it was also just the fun of you, you know, what'd you do today? Oh, I flew to, I flew to Italy across the Alps. And oh, by the way, it was spectacular. Here's the photos. Um, the problem being in flying down there though, was to fly through Switzerland. You have to, and through, we filed a flight plan. Well, VFR flight plans aren't shared at that time. And so what would happen is you'd fly, as you crossed into Switzerland, they wanted to know, you know, basically you had to refile over the radio your entire flight plan. Okay, now you cross over into Austria. They want to know your whole flight plan. You had to repeat it. Then you go into Italy and it's like, look, aren't you talking to the central? And they're like, no. So you had to refile, you know, basically I had to file my flight plan four four times in the air. And then coming back, we just went through Austria. So we only had to file it twice. Do you remember, did you feel scared? Were you excited as you're flying over these mountains? I mean, you're doing 360s, oh. right? But you're a relatively young pilot looking back now. Oh, yeah. I was extremely young mm. pilot. And it was um, doing the 360s climbing. We weren't really scared um, because we were like, look, We'd already briefed that we were, we briefed, we overbriefed the flight for safety's sake with our, uh, the guy who was renting the airplane from, who was also a Swiss pilot, about where we were going to cross, what altitude we were going to cross, the mountain wave, the whole nine yards. So the only thing we were concerned with was, you know, gee, will we actually get that high in time? We weren't really, we, we double checked fuel. Really wasn't that scared. It was, we were, I was more scared when we popped up to 12 because we were like super worried about, you know, I'm okay. Are you okay? Can you still see your fingernails? Yeah. Okay. We were, we, that was a little bit of change for us. We were more concerned that when we were down low in, in, in Switzerland, no, it really wasn't. And it was just the fun of like, oh boy, this is why I got a pilot's license to go take the adventure and just the sightsee. And the fact that I got to do it for work and get paid that day was just like, woohoo. <laughs> I mean, you, you, it sounds like you had, you didn't get the chance to, to be a military pilot, but here you were under your own volition becoming sort of a military pilot. Was there a sense of gratification for you or was it just, were you still coming down from that high? Explain the emotion there. Oh, that was, you know, at first I thought, okay, we're going to have a lot of pro, but no, it was the fact that, um, knowing that, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not one of those 
cool jet pilot guys, but I'm mixed in with the, I can talk the talk with them. The other thing that in later in my job that I also used was you're talking to pilots who are, you know, like the chaos commander. He doesn't get to fly in that position. And some of the other staff officers, and it was like looking at them going, yeah, I put two hours in my logbook today or this weekend. What did you do? Okay. All you non-current pilots, please sit in the back of the room. You know, and they're like, well, I've got 5,000 hours of jet time. Yeah, well, I have 80 hours and two more of them were this weekend. Did you put any time in your? Okay, go sit in the back of the room. Um, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was a lot of fun to hang out with them. And um, also because of my day job and my personal interests, knowing the correct way to um, talk to them and different procedures so you didn't step on anybody's toes with the exception of, you know, hopping into the headquarters through the window. Um, uh, they were, you know, like I said, they were just so, you know, like, oh, he's an aviator. Okay. He's, you know, cool. Um, and that was the fun part of it. It was, um, just the, the vistas were fantastic. Oh my gosh. And the, the fun of flying and being able to just go fly. There's a whole sense of freedom to it. And what I tell when I fly young eagles, and give them the speech, I remind them that you're, as an aviator, you're following the rules is totally voluntary. Because it, when you're driving, look at the curbs, look at the fences, look at the big rocks they put out or planters they put out in front of buildings to prevent you from driving there, or curbs or fences or, you know, posts. And I went, now look up, there's no fences, there's no posts, there's no curbs, you know, your complacence to the rules is purely voluntary and they trust you to follow the rules because they can't prevent you from flying over the white house. You know, you can do, as we say, you can do anything in an airplane once. (laughs) Was it, was there other safety stuff you took? I mean, as such a young pilot. So yeah, you had to climb quickly. You really, really had to develop your flight, flight planning skills, obviously. Right. But just on that flight, is there anything that you feel like you really gained as hard experience that you could share with other people today? It was the flight planning and understanding, let's go talk to somebody. And we talked to two different pilots about this is exactly what we're going to do. And they helped me do the weather to make sure that it was going to be, you know, crystal blue in a thousand. Because uh, that's what I was really scared about. Uh, the other thing that was was I took a non-pilot with me who was an eh, aviation friend, and uh, to this day I find that if I take a someone with me, it makes me a better pilot. Because whether they're an aviation enthusiast, a novice, or another pilot, it's just somebody else, another set of eyes, who can look out and like like when we went over the top, and I said, "Okay, where's the ski lift?" which we hadn't briefed. And it was like, where's the ski lift? And he went, oh, I see it. It's over there. And you're like, oh, okay, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm always flying with a, another pilot. I find it's much more fun. And like I, when I take young eagles up, the fun part there is I tell them, good news, bad news. I don't fly with passengers. I fly with crew. Here's the checklist. Start reading. And I find that to be a great thing because they'll go, set transponder to altitude. And then they'll look at you and go, what's that? And it's a, you know, well, check, it's it's set. And that's this radio that does this, 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 and this for us. We use the phrase, you know, this is stimulation, not simulation. We remind them that like, look, this is real life. 
you don't get to push pause. So we're going to do it and we're going to do it well. I have had kids who have gotten up and gotten, you know, totally scared. We went up with one young man and I, I literally had his dad in the back seat and we had, we weren't five minutes into it. Eight, you know, we just come out of the pattern and we went and he was like, when do we go down? And I'm like, you want to descend? And I was like, and suddenly I realized he wanted to land. He was like really scared. And I was like, okay, let's go back. Flew for, you know, boom. We hadn't been up in the air. I don't think we were up in the air 12 minutes. And the next day I saw his dad at work and I kind of wanted to apologize. And he goes, oh no, he thought it was the greatest thing in the world. He's just been nothing but bragging about it. And I was like, you know, he was scared spitless when we were up in the air. And he goes, yeah, I got that. But I think it was good for him. Um, and he thinks it was good for him because he played a little bit with the simulators. The other thing is that I've had, uh, it wasn't a young Eagle flight because you're not allowed to do that in young Eagle flights. I took another kid up and I say kid, he, this guy was, I think 19 years old. And in my, cause I have a military trainer as my personal airplane. I took him up and threw him into a three G turn. And he immediately was like, Oh my God. You know, it was like, you know, and it was like, you know, we do this all the time in the flight sim. And he goes, yeah. And in real life, I throw you into a three G sim and now you're puking. And it was just like, you only pulled three G's for two seconds there, partner. <laughs> and he was like, oh, this is a lot, you know, tougher and cooler than I thought it was. Um, I have had nothing but positive reviews as I take the young Eagles up. Cause I think it's also teaching them something that, you know, this is real. Do you remember, and of all your years now flying, do you remember the most challenging flight that you've had? As part of the gee whiz fun and impress your friends, a colleague of mine was working for United Bank of Switzerland that was down in Zurich. And I was, he was going to take vacation to go back. He actually had house. He had a, his family was out of Frankfurt. And I said, well, hey, I'll fly down and meet you. And it's no big deal to fly into, you know, I, I worked up the paperwork to fly into Switzerland and I was going to fly into a little airport um, off to the side called, I believe, Ber Berlin, not Berlin, Berlin. And it, when you violate Swiss airspace to land, they want to know exactly, you know, what point you're going to uh, cross the airspace in and at what time. So, all right, I'm in the air and I told them, you know, I'd already filed. I said, yeah, this is me. I'm flying here. November 4306 Whiskey. Same same little PA-28. And they got on the air thing and said, uh, we need you to fly to Zurich. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was like, no, I'm going to Vernon. I have an appointment to clear customs. And they said, no, we needed you to divert to Zurich. And I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm literally arguing with the guy politely. And I'm like, no, I'm going to Berlin. I have an appointment to clear customs. And they came online and went, Hans called in sick. You're going to have to clear customs in Zurich. And, and you're a young pilot, right? You're a young pilot. Yeah, yeah, I'm like at 100 hours, 80 hours. Yeah. I forget what I was. And Zurich's their and major, like, and that's the major international yeah, airport. Zurich is the class B big airport, whole nine yards. And I'm like, oh boy. And I was like, uh, then I tried my last straw. I was like, well, I don't have a uh, landing code for Zurich. And they were like, Pre prepared to copy. And I was like, damn it. Uh, <laughs> oh, don't worry. We've got it for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I have luckily again, 
because I briefed it to the guy who owned the airplane, he gave me um, the IFR charts for Switzerland to carry in the airplane that day, which included this big fold-out map of what Zurich International looked like. So I was able flying in. I was like, uh, 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 and that was scary because I was scared not so much of life and limb or any of that stuff. It was more like just looking like an idiot. I figured out which one way they wanted in pattern. I landed and then they gave me a progressive taxi instructions, which I'd never dealt with. It was like, and I kind of got law and they, they, they sent the truck out for me. And it was like, is that for me? They're like, yeah, just follow the truck. You know, a little follow me car. And I putz around. And what was fun about that was at Zurich, concourse A, B, C, and D are just like any other airport, you big class B, you know, there's con Well, concourse E is their executive airport or concourse. And there's a little gate that you, from the regular concourses to get into concourse E. But that's where all the biz jets and the little follow me truck parked me right in the middle of, I, I think I was the only airplane on the tarmac that had a propeller on the front of it. <laughs> what I took away from this at this point was I got exposed to a cool part of aviation that none of the guys in Zurich at the executive terminal knew me from dirt, but they all thought it was so cute that I'd been forced to land there. Um, a couple of the corporate pilots let me use their account to log into the European equivalent of Duot so I could file another flight plan. And, you know, everybody there was just super helpful in understanding that, like, look, I'm a fish out of water. I'm not used to this executive stuff. And, you know, there are big bank executives coming and leaving from Zurich. You know, they're waiting to get into their Learjets and or their Bombardiers and whatever. And, uh, and finance ministers and all that stuff. And I'm just like, do, 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 do. And I called my friend and said, you know, hey, meet me at Zurich International, the executive E, and his boss drove him over and looked at all those big jets and turned to him and went, I'm freezing your bank account. Get out of the car. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was like, you know, you're leaving country and you're leaving in a, you know. <laughs> and so we get back in the airplane and sure enough, it's during a major push. I joined the conga line. There's 10 airplanes in front of me and five behind me. And the plane in front of me is an L-1011. And the plane behind me was a 747. And I'm like putzing up. And I'm like watching the Hobbs meter, realizing that, <laughs> oh, good God, we're going to spend, you know, it's going to cost me $75 just in taxiing, you know. And all of a sudden, they, the tower called me up and said, hey, would you accept a midfield takeoff? Well, Zurich's only has got 10,000 or 12,000 feet of runway. And I'm like, you know, midfield that's 4,200. Yeah. I can get a, I can get a PA 28 into the air and 4,000 feet of runway. And it was like, yes. And they're like immediate right turn, immediate right turn on. You are cleared for takeoff runway zero, you know, zero nine expedite or two seven expedite. It was like, okay. In other words, get the hell out of my space. And we, you know, pulled onto the runway and, you know, were up and out of line. And I wasn't maybe 200 feet in the air. And the, the tower called me and said, immediate right turn, continue climb. And 90 degree turned me. And essentially, he ordered me to fly over the city of Zurich at 300 feet. And we were both looking out the window going, oh, this is so cool. We could never legally do this, but they told us to do this. <laughs> and essentially, he just wanted me out of his airspace. So for one brief moment, you know, Marzari Aviation had the one thing that United and Lufthansa and British Air wanted. 
I had landing slots into Zurich International. <laughs> it seems like for you, you got into general aviation because you loved flying and, and through doing so, adventure found you, right? <laughs> like, would you say that's, that's fair? Yeah. That's absolutely correct. And um, yeah, my two stories are coming out of Europe. And But I've had adventures here in America and just doing normal flying is adventurous and safe and you get to meet the coolest people and get to stumble into the coolest places. Um, so I highly recommend because there's adventure to be found that doesn't involve, you know, there I was at 3000 feet and, you know, I was inverted and my alternator failed. And then I looked over and saw that my wing was on fire. Mm -hmm. Oh, damn. Mm -hmm. you know, there's no, you don't have to be at that life threatening. There's great adventures of just, flying into somewhere for a hundred dollar hamburger. There are many different restaurants. In fact, I want to plug one right now. It's not a, not a restaurant, but a site. It's called Eat at the Airport. And we have all these places that you can just for a re you go fly, you land, and the um, there's one, several of them that you can park your airplane close to the restaurant and you can park your car in. So you stop, go in, have a hamburger, relax, and then fly home. Uh, there's a lot of air of little adventures like that. And there are little adventures that you can get every day. In fact, real quick, third adventure. During COVID, I call, in March of last year, I called up Dallas Inter uh, You looked up the tower phone number to the tower themselves and called and said, hey, I'm a little private airplane. I want to land at DF at... DFW. And I said, when would be the best time to do that? And they said, Saturday between 1130 and 1230. We got no pushes, no landing scheduled. Okay. And I flew into, you know, called the airport and did the, and then flew into class Bravo airspace because I wanted to put DFW in my logbook. And there was some confusion right up until as they were, they called me final. They finally said, look, we've, we've triple checked. If your wheels touch the asphalt, you'll owe us $85 in landing fees. And I was like, um, that's beyond the fun and giggles of what we're doing. He goes, okay, low approach approved. So, all right. In purely safe mode, I flew down to within 50 feet of the runway mm. and then flew, you know, DFW's, I think, 13,000 feet. That's almost two and a half miles. I flew at, you know, max airspeed. <laughs> you know, I was right you know, in the yellow arc. At 50 feet above the ground, you know, and just flew the length of their runway, then popped back up and said, you know, okay, I want to leave. You know, that's an adventure. We got to fly into DFW. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about the A5 with you. I guess in short, what, what does the A5 mean to you, if, if anything? The A5, one, gosh, that's a cool looking airplane. Um, two... Uh, it looks like a great entry level because I noticed that, um, and what I'm ex what I really want to experience is you essentially have just three gauges: an airspeed indicator, attack, and a um, angle of attack. And your angle of attack is, and we'll save what angle of attack does. That's a whole other thing. But you fly angle of attack, and the rest of us, especially you know, I fly a big heavy um, warbird. Uh, we fly airspeed, 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 airspeed. And angle of attack is a different way of flying. And I think it's a little safer way of flying. And I'm really excited about trying that. It's a 
you know, the plane still flies like the plane flies, but it's how you think about it. And I looked at the icon, you know, also you can fly with your windows open. And I know that just sounds wild because, you know, mine, you can't fly with the wind yet. You know, the canopy's got to be all the way closed. Um, so you miss that wind in your, you know, wind in your hair, bugs in your teeth kind of feel. Uh, that just looks so much fun. And also, you know, I looked into it, you know, the icon flies, the Rotax I uh, 912, and that's just a, that's a freaking bulletproof engine. They just don't break, you know? And it's like, what a great choice for engines because it runs MoGas. So it's like, okay, this is going to be safe. Let's go do this. Just want to say a special thanks to Brad, AKA Launchpad for letting me interview him uh, for this episode. Check out the Airplane Geeks podcast. You can go to airplanegeeks.com. It's probably the easiest way to find it. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast or about Icon Aircraft, just go to iconaircraft.com where we have our flight training information, information on the Icon A5, and just basically anything you'd want to know about um, Icon Aircraft and Light Spore Aircraft in general. I'm Paul. Again, thanks everybody for listening. Take care, and we'll catch you in the next episode.